Hello and welcome to Pedra's Points of Discussion podcast. Our debate topic this month is should hydratinitis superativa be treated aggressively or not aggressively? This program is brought to you by the Pedra Acne and HS Focus Study Group. Before we begin, it's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaboration, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce your moderator for this program, Dr. Irene Lara Corrales. She's the Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto and a staff physician in pediatric dermatology at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada. She is currently the Pediatric Dermatology Fellowship Director, and she also co-chairs the Acne and HS Focus Study Group for PEDRA. At this time, I'll turn it over to you, Dr. Lara Corrales. Thank you so much for joining us. So we're here today with Dr. Jasmine Kirkorian, a dermatologist and chief of dermatology at Children's National Hospital, and Dr. E.C. Andrews from Spectrum Dermatology in Arizona. And we are talking about hydratinitis superativa in pediatrics. So hydratinitis superativa is one of those emerging skin diseases that sometimes keeps us pediatric dermatologists up at night because we're dealing with more severe disease and we're seeing it more and more in our pediatric patients. And we have lots of questions about how to manage these kids. So hydrogenase superativa, it's a chronic inflammatory skin disease that most commonly affects the folds. Um, I'm not sure about you, but definitely I feel that there has been like many, many more cases coming up to my clinics over the last years. And I'm seeing more and more severe disease in younger kids. Unfortunately, sometimes when they come to see us, they already have scars and they have more severe disease. And because there's not a lot of research that we have been doing and publishing on hydratinitis superativa in pediatrics, sometimes the big question is management and what are we treating these patients with? So how we manage this patients is probably one of the biggest challenges that we face in our pediatric dermatology practices. So what we wanted to discuss today is different approaches on the management of these patients. So uh, I feel that there are two different kind of boats, like one, pe uh, people are being more aggressive, trying to really burn out this condition as soon as it is diagnosed and others are a little bit less aggressive, uh, especially with our pediatric patients that are presenting very, very young. For the purpose of this discussion, we're going to be defining non-aggressive treatments as topical interventions, oral antibiotics, zinc or other supplements, and lifestyle modifications, and aggressive treatments as uh, any other systemic uh, modalities like biologics, uh, hormonal treatments, surgery and laser and kind of more interventional uh, procedures for the management of HS. So now we're going to go to Dr. Kirkorian to talk about this non-aggressive treatments and why we need to consider them 
in our pediatric dermatology patients. Dr. Fikorian. Okay, thanks, Dr. Lara Corrales. So, um, you know, I think it is reasonable in mild disease to always build our step ladder of therapy, um, especially when we don't have evidence of scarring, fistula, tract formation. Um, however, you know, I'll caveat that if you do have evidence of aggressive disease, what we're saying now really doesn't hold. But in the setting of mild disease, you know, we can ask the question, is there evidence that every patient with mild disease progresses to severe disease? Um, and we don't necessarily have that data, so we don't have to proceed with the assumption that every child that has, let's say, comedones in their axilla or has one furuncle will definitely, with necessity, go on to be severe. Uh, that being said, we need to monitor these children closely and give anticipatory guidance to the families, um, and this is going to be a long-standing relationship for this, um, you know, cr chronic disease. But if we take the example of a child with mild disease, I think it is, you know, eminently reasonable to consider um, uh, what we're calling mild uh, treatments before we move on, as we would in any disease, up our therapeutic ladder. So, you know, to that extent, um, our topicals in this group play a very important role. So we do use, you know, a variety of topicals, typically topical antibiotics, um, both washes and leave-on products such as benzoyl peroxide, chlorhexidine, um, clindamycin. Uh, obviously, we don't want to use clindamycin as monotherapy because we have, we know that the likelihood of developing resistance is quite high. Um, there's some studies looking at resorcinol. Um, and in, as adjunctive to that, many of us consider using, you know, medications such as zinc orally. Uh, it can cause some GI distress, but otherwise is quite a safe medication and has some data as being anti-inflammatory and is really, I think, well received by parents as an option before we start talking about, um, you know, systemic medications that pose higher risks. So if you see one of these patients with mild disease that only has open comedones, in uh, the axillary area, what is the preferred treatment? Like what is your first step to manage them? Yeah, so the comedonal um, prominent HS is quite interesting. And I think then you wanna have comedolytic therapy. Uh, so this is a circumstance in which, in addition to benzoyl peroxide, I would consider a topical retinoid, treating it really more like acne, maybe doing um, some gentle comedone extraction. You don't wanna manipulate the follicle too much. I do see this sometimes in children with um, trisomy 21 as a phenotype, and then some people just seem to have this as their phenotype of their HS. Of course, it could be admixed with much more severe stage HS, in which case you're going to treat aggressively. Um, but I think retinoids do have a role in that circumstance. Um, and then hair removal, we didn't overtly discuss, but, um, you know, gentle hair removal and even considering laser hair removal in this circumstance could be quite beneficial. Um, whereas I think in more severe disease, it's really not, in my opinion, quite effective. At that point, you're dealing with scarring and tracts and you have bigger fish to fry. But in mild disease, in parents who have the funds, because this is not covered by insurance typically, um, I do think laser hair removal could be a reasonable option. And when do you kind of start taking that next step to consider oral antibiotics? Right. So I think when you have inflammatory lesions, that's when you need to at least consider the oral antibiotics. And by that, I mean furuncles or draining 
um, you know, a draining nodule. Uh, the parents will often tell you in the patient it's the same spot that keeps getting inflamed and so on. Um, so if unless you have just one, in which case you might consider intralesional catalog, which has some data, but if you start to have multiple um, or multiple sites involved, even if there's only one or two, that is a time to consider it. I think the caveat to that is I'm not super impressed with the durability of response. So you might get better while on the antibiotics, but then what's your end game? Same thing with acne. Like, what's your end game? You're going to just be on this for life. Um, so there are rare patients in whom there is this flaring that you can control with short bursts of doxycycline, for example. Um, but I still think you have to ask yourself the question. I know I'm arguing the mild, but I still think you have to ask yourself, well, what is the end game question? And maybe that would trigger you to move on to more severe so-called aggressive options, even if their disease presentation wasn't so severe. Many of our patients end up coming to the eMERGE when they have one of these uh, boils and they end up being sometimes even admitted for more acute antibiotic therapy. Do you think that swabs and kind of, uh, there's kind of a little bit of that back and forth, like the role of bacteria in HS and um, do you think there is a role for sometimes taking swabs or ruling out uh, infection in these patients? I think it's so difficult to get a real sense of what is an infection versus colonization. You know, it seems like, from my understanding, that a lot of this is the immune system's, you know, dysregulated response to normal flora or flora that uh, colonizes the tracts, the biofilm. So that is why I don't really think the antibiotics are doing much, except perhaps as being anti-inflammatory, um, or maybe they're reducing the numbers enough that you know, you don't have such a brisk inflammatory response. I do think a child who's been to the emergency room, and I know Izzy will get into this multiple times, either it's an access to care issue, which of course is the prim primary problem, but it also can be indication for a more aggressive therapy. If you're going to the ER and you're requiring admission, even if your disease from a pheno like phenotypic standpoint doesn't look that bad, you're severe, you need to be evaluated. You either need better access to care or something else is going on and we need to treat more aggressively. And I know we mentioned lifestyle modifications as some of the kind of less aggressive modalities that we can suggest when we see these patients. What do you think about that? Like it's, uh, there's a lot of controversy around it too. Yeah, it's such a hard one. Like everybody could benefit from lifestyle modification because, and it's very easy to say and prescribe and it's extremely difficult to implement. So I would challenge any of us who's telling a patient to do lifestyle modification, like what is it that you're telling them to do? Like eat less food, like walk more, that's not practical. You have to actually, I would like better data on like what is an actual effective counseling and then how does a patient implement it effectively? So that's one issue. We do have a referral obesity um, clinic that feed, you know, that has a lot of um, these tools and yet I don't see a lot of patients necessarily successfully changing their lifestyle. So because this is such a social issue, do we have places that we can safely play? Do we have safe access to food and so on? I think lifestyle modification is critical to counsel on on every visit with the understanding that we need to make sure that we're empathetic. Like, can you really implement this? And then the other issue is, let's say someone does lose weight. So we have children who sometimes undergo surgical procedures for weight loss, like gastric bypass or, or what have you. And I have seen children that actually didn't improve in that scenario. So what that leads me to say is, while I suspect weight loss has benefits regardless, right? It's, we know it's gonna affect your cardiovascular health. 
you know, all these other issues reduce your risk of diabetes. So it's worth it regardless. But whether we can say it definitively improves HS, I'm not sure. And I think we need to study more. Um, but certainly it's a worthwhile thing to pursue, avoidance of tobacco smoke, um, increased exercise. Now, when you tell someone with severe HS to exercise and they can barely walk or move their arms, not really practical. So I think for me, I would like a lot more data, maybe every SPD for someone to present like an actual practical lecture on how does one modify one's lifestyle? Because I don't know that there's great evidence for that. And, and you're completely right because we see HS in patients that have normal weight as well. Like this is not something exclusively that we see in obese patients and, or those that have uh, endocrine or hormonal uh, abnormalities. So it's definitely, I agree, we need much more evidence about this. Yeah, I don't and know, obviously any last thoughts know. of how to um, manage less aggressively our patients? Do you have any other tricks that you... Um, no, I think we've covered the tricks. I guess one other thing I would just plug, which is from your paper, uh, our paper, is that family history is so common in our patients and underappreciated. So, you know, if you ask, well, do you have HS? They'll say no, but oh, do you get boils, et cetera? Then many times it'll be many generations. Again, pointing to the fact that this is highly genetic and, you know, there's going to be that, again, that gets back to like, does lifestyle help you if you have this? But um, I would say if you have a family history and a child presents early, that may be the time that we can implement these mild um, measures and have them be effective. In other words, we wanna capture people when they are mild and try these interventions, um, whether they be 11 before they come to us at 16 with six years delay in diagnosis. Um, so if we are going to implement the so-called non-aggressive therapies, we also need to do work at capturing people early when those are likely to be effective. So thank you so much, Dr. Kirkorian, for uh, talking about this non-aggressive treatments today. Um, so we're going to um, finish this episode here and please join us in our next episode with Dr. Andrus to talk about the more aggressive treatments that we have for our patients with HS. Thank you so much for listening to this points of discussion. Should HS be treated aggressively or non-aggressively? Episode one. Dr. Kokorian did a great job outlining non-aggressive treatments and highlighting some of the research gaps in this area. Tune in for the next episode to hear Dr. Andrews' point of view on aggressive treatments. It's available now. Thank you to Dr. Irene Lara Corrales for moderating this program, and a special thank you to Dr. Yasmin Kerkorian. Special thanks to our program sponsors, AbbVie Inc., Eli Lilly and & Company, and Sanofi Genzyme and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for their support of this independent medical education program. Pedra is solely responsible for all of the programmed content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. Be sure to subscribe to Pedra Pearls in iTunes, Google, or Spotify so you can get access to this program and all of our other podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>